0: Played that before, Alex, but please remind me what is that song and who is the band.
1: That was uh, the unfortunately named Gorky's Zygotic Monkey. <laughs> and that song is patio
0: song. When's that from? Uh, late nineties maybe? No kidding. I, for some is it because of the show? Is that why it sounds familiar to me, or is it somewhere in back in my mind? Yeah, I play this one a bunch. I like okay. it. That's it. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. What if, I I know I started Tuesday's show about palm oil with a what if But cut me some slack, I'm a week away from a much needed vacation What if your national identity wasn't based upon some characteristic That was endemic to the place where you live and the people who live there Here in the States, it's what we like to imagine is some sort of rugged individualism That defines us, that somehow we find pride in At times, that identity can be grounded in the freedoms you have won or the governing system that was created at the birth of your nation. Or maybe it's your national compassion for one another, finding identity through things like your social welfare systems that cares for everyone without any limit other than those who need to get what they need. National identity also can be based on some historic context where one can find pride in your countrymen's accomplishments. But what if you define who you are and what the nation you are part of means through violence, violence targeted at the other, and other you so dehumanize that violence, often deadly violence, is not only normalized, but threats of violent, violence against, again, really deadly violence are not only tolerated, but they're even celebrated. What happens when your national project is not as much pride for who you are, but disgust at who they are and the ensuing violence to keep them down? What if at the heart of your national identity is nothing but violence? In a few minutes, we will be discussing Israel's extreme and violent far-right which actually celebrates violence against Palestinians, in a few minutes. When we speak with Avi Gerlich, who wrote the Hypocrite Reader article, The Violence is the Point, Avi teaches oral Torah at Pre-Collegiate Learning Center of New Jersey and is an editor-in-chief at Hypocrite Reader, a monthly magazine of essays, both conceptual and timely, which you can find at hypocritereader.com. Avi runs a Hebrew school associated with the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. He's also an activist and active in the Northern Manhattan Is Not For Sale, an anti-gentrification group focused on Washington Heights and Inwood. He's also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Also on today's show, we will share more of your stories about how you first discovered this is hell. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell, and we'll tell you who's going to be on the show next week. Producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, how's your week gone so far? Uh,
1: I just want to say R.I.P. to Glenn Ford of Black Agenda Report. This is uh, the deaths of two guests have made me feel bad on This Is Hell's History. And the other one was Bruce Dixon of Black Agenda Report. Uh, Glenn Ford always had like a real clear, consistent analysis of power. Look up something he wrote 15 years ago and look up something he wrote a year ago. And he's saying the same things because he's been right the same time. Never got duped. uh, Always had very clear principles. Uh, I'm real sad that he died. Uh, Margaret Kimberly and Danny Haifong and all the folks at Black Agenda Report are keeping up great work. If you had to read one site, I would just read Black Agenda Report. Uh, but yeah, I'm real sad about Glenn Ford. Uh, sorry to all his coworkers and his family. That's a big loss.
0: Yeah, my week took a really sharp turn for the worse yesterday. Uh, there are very few guests who, when they pass away, I actually break down in tears, and Glenn was one of them. Uh, so yeah, I when I learned that uh, past This Is How a Guest listener favorite, one of the people I most enjoyed speaking with on our show since he was on back in the late 20th century. Someone who I would regularly uh, introduce by commenting on the dulcet tone of his voice. Someone who, like his late great colleague, Bruce Dixon, supported and spread the word about This Is Hell more than any other organization. When nobody had heard of This Is Hell, co-founder and executive editor of Black Agenda Report, Glenn Ford, did. We once asked Glenn for a uh, quote endorsing the show, and this is what he sent. This is Hell is the perfect radio environment For those who want to make sense of the world The show is chaka block With intelligence Sincere commitment and humor A rare combination in a dumbed-down media universe We were honored To have both Glenn Ford and Bruce Dixon On our show many, many times And our hearts goes out, go out to uh, everybody At Black Agenda Report Including recent guests Danny Haifong and Margaret Kimberly. Check out Danny's wonderful Tribute to Glenn on Danny's Facebook page So, yeah. These guys
1: way too young. Both of them, too. It's really
0: sad. Real heartbreaking. But hardly as important as that. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience?
1: This week's question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on this show in the next 25 years on uh, 2046, our 50th anniversary in 2046?
0: I don't know what we'll be talking about, but I bet it'll be somebody from Black Agenda Report who we'll be talking about it with. The person with our favorite answer to this Week's question mail wins your choice of whatever This is hell swag you want you can check out All of our merchandise right now by going to Thisishell.com clicking on support Where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely Listener supported this is hell without you we got Nothing so thanks to all of you For your support you can leave your answer to this Week's question mail at our Facebook page you can tweet it at Us you can email it to us but we must have Your answer by the end of today's show When we are announcing this week's winner Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question mail Following our guest again This week's question is What are we going to be talking about on the show On our 50th anniversary in 2046 More listeners are sharing how they discovered This is hell for the first time And if you want to share how you first found the show Email us your story at chuck at thisishell.com Rob writes My friend Jesse moved from New Jersey to Chicago And does a bunch of dope activism Activism work, such as with the Tenants Union out there. He came across this as and introduced me to it in 2016. It somehow led me to sending. Chuck an office chair and thank you For that office chair Rob my back Would not have survived the last 18 months Without it so thank you very much I complained about my back hurting And somebody sent me an office chair The other day I complained about not being able to Sleep and somebody sent me a whole bunch of CBD stuff in the mail so I should just Tell you what all my complaints are every week Wait I do that Dan explains how he found this as hell. I had just moved to Chicago and Randy invited me to come sit in on a radio show he was going to tape with an old friend of his whom he thought I would like. Randy was the person who played piano live as background music during early episodes of the show. So, uh, Dan continues, Randy encouraged me to bring my accordion along, just in case. The guest was an anarchist bike shop owner, and I found the interview fascinating. I continued to sit in on tapings for months, uh, wailing on the accordion at inappropriate times, and shooting the crap with the various guests that came by, then often hanging out with Chuck after the tapings and learning a lot About the history of the city of Chicago. Yes, when we began doing our show, we actually had both a piano player and an accordionist who would provide live musical accompaniment whenever we were not conducting interviews. And there's nothing quite like. Hearing news read while a piano and accordion are playing live. They really contribute to the serious tone of the news. Pammy writes how she discovered This Is Hell. I was binging on Guy McPherson for a spell, and you had interviewed him at the time. I appreciated the tone of the interview considering his apocalyptic message, and I have been a fan of This Is Hell ever since. So Guy was on back in 2016. He's been on since then. Uh, But he was on back then to talk about this huge essay he had posted, Nature Bats Last. I think it was I think that's the name of it. And Guy argues that near-term, that is in the bigger scope of time, near-term human extinction is, in Guy's word, guaranteed. This is Hell, the only show where an apocalyptic message can actually get listeners hooked on the show. And Jack says, One of the first podcasts I discovered was Best of the Left, which is basically a clip show using clips from a number of left and left-leaning programs to discuss a different theme each episode. Around 2014 or 2015, they use a segment from This Is Hell, and I've been a listener ever since. I remember Best of the Left actually contacting us and asking if they could use a clip from the show, which I thought was very kind of them to ask. They didn't have to ask, they could have just played it and we wouldn't have cared. I mean, if we were going to play a clip of something, anything, there's no way we'd ask. We don't have the time or energy. But thanks for asking, Best of the Left. If you hadn't, Jack would never have found us. And finally, Jeremy writes, How he discovered This Is Hell, I assume it was when I asked my roommate who the guy passed out on the couch was. So when we were doing four hours of live radio without any commercial interruption or any interruption of any kind, as soon as the show was over, I would literally pass out from exhaustion. Most of the time that happened on my way home in the car or on the train home or right when I got back to my home bed in Chicago. However, there were the off occasions. When my girlfriend was out of town and I would end up at a producer's home up in Evanston, I'd crash on their couch. I remember at least at least a few times waking up somewhere in a producer's roommate, usually being someone who has just become old enough to drink alcohol legally, would ask, who's the old dude on the couch? Which is a pretty humbling way to start your weekend. If you want to share how you first discovered This Is Hell, send us your story to chuck at and we'll share yours on air Coming up, what happens when your identity is wrapped up in violence? We'll also tell you what's happening on our bonus Patreon podcast for tomorrow, Friday. Alex will have more of your answers, actually the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are we going to be talking about on the show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer. A-S-A-P. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. When you... See the nation to which you believe you belong as first and foremost, a nation whose mission it is to wipe out some adversary that can have some serious, serious dehumanizing effects on not only your beliefs, but those who you would victimize as well. Viewing yourself and your compatriots as eternally repressed, locked into a deadly conflict since, since forever, is a disturbing narrative to embrace and far too many on israel's extremist far-right are doing just that here to explain what's happening and why Avi Gerlich wrote the hypocrite reader article the violence is the point welcome to this is hell Avi Uh, thanks It's an honor and privilege to be on the air with you. Thank you very much for being on the show with us. You write that in May 2021, in the midst of a wave of nationalist violence by the Israeli state and vigilantes against Palestinians, a video clip caught fire on the Internet. In the background, flames leap near the Al-Aqsa Mosque, while in the foreground, throngs of male religious Israeli youths mosh and sing in delight, a grotesque juxtaposition of recognizably buoyant concert culture with an image of destruction at a holy site. The song that boomed from a crane-rigged tower of speakers is an upbeat rock anthem by singer-songwriter Dav Shirin, a self-described rocker of salvation who graced the cover of the economist in 1994 holding an uzi and a torah a rocker endorsed by the most capitalist of media outlets who is armed with a deadly weapon and a faith's most important religious document while finding joy in expressing dehumanizing hate that image has it all? And I know this is kind of a big question, but what does that image say about Western civilization when we, uh, when mass culture, money, violence, and religion are celebrated alongside the demonization of the other? What has civilization become?
2: What has civilization become? Wow, great, qu- great question, Chuck. <laughs> um, well, I, I um, yeah, I, I put that uh, a description of that. Uh, Economist cover uh in the introduction to the piece because the the piece is essentially about this uncomfortable juxtaposition of scholarship a- and violence um holding an israeli made um weapon in one hand uh and the ageless Sefer torah in the other as dorin does um it sort of creates this like for me uh terrifying, uh, image of the crossbreeding uh, of scholarship, um, and, uh, vengeful violence. And, um, it, it kind of like, as far as how it, where what is what is what a civilization come to. Yeah. Like <laughs> one of the like founding documents of Jewish civilization, um, is here being like telescoped, um, into this like much more recent Israeli cultural military product. Um, And uh, you've got this guy with this long beard um, saying, like, I represent what Jewish civilization is all about. um, And I have no problem opening fire on my enemies. Um, So, you know, we're kind of at this point um, in history where, you know, catastrophe after catastrophe has piled up and everything has, you know, from past and and, and present has telescoped
0: into an utterly terrifying future. Exactly Uh, You then describe another disturbing image Writing, observers of Israeli Far-right youth culture might have Experienced a sense of deja vu as in December 2015, a video of boys dancing To the same song had inspired A wave of shock and unease At the wedding of a prominent settler family Celebrants danced to the Shuren song While toting Molotov cocktails and IDF-issued guns and knives. One boy stabbed a picture of a Palestinian toddler recently killed in a firebomb attack by settler terrorists who were personal friends with many guests at the wedding. The short clip provided undeniable evidence, not just of genocidal terrorist violence by settlers, terrorists in the sense that they committed political violence unsanctioned by the state, but also of an endemic culture that condones, celebrates, and even sanctifies it. Does this constant state of occupying others' land and the continuing process of taking that land from others who have lived and built on it, for that ongoing process to continue, do you think it must be celebrated? If it was not, could it continue? Is celebrating necessary for an occupation's sustainability? Does settler colonialism have to be made into something fun? to hide its brutality and allow its continuation? That's a good question. And it kind of brings us to the, um,
2: to the complicated relationship between um, these settlers who are kind of at the um, forefront, the vanguard um, of Israel's settlement project, the relationship between them and just kind of the more mainstream um, elements, you know, what would it look like if we didn't have these guys, um, and we just had, you know, the, um, uh, the kind of urban planning, um, projects that the Netanyahu government, uh, is engaged in, you know, that, uh, offers, but you've also got people who are living in settlements who are just there because, uh, that's where the cheaper housing is. Right. Um, and th- th- those people aren't jumping up and down, um, right. They're, they're just kind of complicit, uh, pawns in, uh, a larger project, but they're going about their lives and commuting, you know, back over the green line every day. Um, so I, you know, I don't know it, 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 the question you're asking kind of poses the prospect that these kinds of celebration are like the pulsing heart, um, of, the project of settlement or like the uncovered id, um, you know, and that, uh, that, might, <laughs> that might be true. Um, but, uh, um, there are also all of these, I don't know, there are all of these flavors of settlement activity and, uh, it's tempting to say it's all kind of being pulled into this abyss. Um, but I, I don't, you know, can't say that with
0: confidence. And it's important, that's a really good point that you make, it's important to distinguish the people who are doing the celebrating from the people who are the settlers. Are the people who are doing the celebrating very often not the settlers? And what does that reveal about the people who are celebrating, that they are not the settlers, yet they're the ones who celebrate the settlement the most?
2: Yeah, well, I think the ones who really are celebrating the most are settlers, uh, uh, um, though there are, um, you know, supporters... uh, On the other side of the green line as well as in the u.s um uh the really like the people at that wedding have been immersed in this culture um since their their birth and you know and i just want to say uh i was a teenager in 2005 when um the uh government of israel enforced uh, the withdrawal from the settlements in gaza um and that sparked a whole wave of um, anti-government feeling um, in what is now a new generation. I mean, if you were born in 2005, the year that you know your family got dragged out of you know, your, your settlement house in Gaza, right now you're turning 16. Um, so these are the kids who are, who are moshing um, at the Western Wall. Um, they have this kind of really interesting, if terrifying, oppositional attitude um to the state. Um which you know it's worth exploring because they, they they hate. You know, another example of of uh of this kind of scene, um, which I uncovered in some research is back in 2010, um there were a couple of arrests at a purim celebration. Um in in Hebron um where uh teenagers had t-shirts like R.E.L. Sharon is a traitor and will soon die or we got Rabin Rabin who was uh, assassinated in 1995 um you know they're they're at this um they're immersed in this culture they're out there they, they see it as their whole life um and they are um they're prepared to kind of take this oppositional attitude and use it to goad the state into
0: legitimizing them, that makes sense. Is this kind of celebrating deadly violence only done by a small minority? And how much influence does this small minority have? Because it does not take a majority to cause real change.
2: That's right. That's right. And I think it is absolutely a small minority um, that, is, um, that is engaged in this. And, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm too far removed from... You know, I've never lived in Israel or, or uh, Israel-Palestine. I'm too far removed from it to say You know how much uh, tacit um, ac- acceptance or approval they have. But I know that it, it only takes that small minority to make change, like you said. Um, and um, previous prime ministers like Sharon and Netanyahu um, have been adept at using um, this kind of um, pressure from the far right, far, far right to, uh, to move forward on their, uh, right wing agenda.
0: You point out that Dav Sharin's ghastly anthem draws its lyrics from a scriptural source, "Recall me, pray and strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may avenge myself in one act of vengeance from the Philistines to my uh, for my two eyes." A prayer spoken by the super strong Israelite hero Samson, weakened, captured and blinded by the, his Philistine oppressors, Samson is paraded around for their enjoyment at a large party full of noble men and women. Leaning on two pillars for strength, he calls out to God, and summons his old powers breaking at the pillars and collapsing the whole pavilion onto himself and three thousand revelers killing more in his death than he had in his life the song makes one and only one fan-pleasing update to the scripture the replacement Of Philistines with Palestinians and you point out that it seems evident why Samson's prayer might serve as a nationalistic Jewish ballad it's a call to God for vengeance and victory over an enemy people but why do Israeli settlers sing a song about overcoming an oppressor nation even when they enjoy a position of dominance so is this in a sense uh, settler colonial uh de- de- denialism is the story sung this way in order to promote a narrative that in fact there is no oppressive colonialism going on that palestinians are not expressing or experiencing any uh oppression huh.
2: um yeah yeah i mean I-, I think at the core of the um of the ideology here um is this kind of trans historical attitude about the goyan um and um e- part of my method in writing this essay is kind of about noticing uh, gaps between uh, the foundational uh, myths or stories um and the ideology um that is appropriating them um, so this uh, identity for instance this identity between the palestinians and the philistines you know there's a coincidental uh, sim- similarity in, in names but the philistines who were they i mean were they just like random goyim who might as well have been you know the Amorites or the Amalekites? not really i mean they were um if you read it if you read the book of the bible closely um you can tell they are likely a seafaring nation of conquerors who colonized uh, a western region in Canaan, right near the coast, and who had advanced military technology, chariots, um, that made it possible for them um, to take advantage of n- neighboring peoples like the Israelites. Um, so, um, you know, the right-wing Zionists kind of give away the game because sometimes the Palestinians are Philistines, but sometimes they're Amalekites, right? Which are biblical enemies never conflated within the bible itself right the bible has a very clear uh, idea of who the different peoples are um but for um but for right wing kind of funda- jewish fundamentalists um or zionist fundamentalists i should say um you know you can You can slot in any enemy people for the other So that basically the Palestinians Are responsible for the Holocaust Or might as well be
0: So you also point out that to understand The resonance of the Shurun song More fully we need to return to Samson's story And to the story of Shurun's intellectual godfather The infamous rabbi and provocateur Merikahane Is this a retelling Or maybe even a mistelling Of the Torah Or was Merikahane's simply a different reading and interpretation of the Torah and the story of Samson? Is, is this a purposeful misreading, or is this just somebody else's interpretation?
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, right. I mean, Kahana was really fond of saying, you know, you're going to call me an extremist, but um, this is just Torah Judaism. This is just the halakha, right, the Jewish law. Um, applied in a plain way and I talk about in the essay how part of the allure of Kahana's ideology is his appeals to common sense um, and so he kind of um, he exploits contradictions in liberal ideology um, and basically encourages uh, liberals to throw off their you know their constraining superego and embrace what they believe to be like really true um, which includes what they believe to be really true about Jewish tradition and texts. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's his, his take. is kind of like, just read this and see what it says. Like, open the book of Deuteronomy. It says, drive out the idolatrous nations from the land of Canaan. You don't want us to do that? That's what it says in the book. But like, you know, go ahead and read the rest of the Hebrew Bible to see how that plays out the israelites become enamored of this idea of their inherent superiority right in the book of kings take they take god's grace for granted and they end up nearly annihilated and driven out of the land themselves by foreign powers um so there's a overall like moral and political message of the hebrew bible that's being um ignored by uh kahana right the the book of deuteronomy is not a good primer on international relations um it never has been, it hasn't been in the rabbinic tradition applied in a straightforward way. Um, similarly with the story of Samson, and part of what I'm doing in the essay is um, offering myself a plain reading of the story of Samson um, and showing how he is, you know, kind of a selfish brute. Um, and I, I didn't get so much into this um, subtle textual analysis, but um You know, the the book of Judges describes him, for instance, as doing what is right in his own eyes, um, which is a simple phrase. But um, in the book of Deuteronomy, again, is a um, it's kind of a a key recurring phrase that describes what's the wrong thing to do. Right. You do what's right in your own eyes instead of following God's commandments. Um, And that's supposed to be kind of um, the beginning of a slide. Uh, into immorality and idolatry, right? So the the story of Samson is clearly, clearly what's happening is that he is, he's a brute. um, He's not, uh, he's not a straightforward hero by any means. And so there's this kind of mystery, which is implicit in the text of like, why is he a pawn in God's plan for the Israelite people when he's clearly not, personally worthwhile. Uh, so Kahanist rabbis who today are using Samson in their sermons uh, in settlement yeshivas, you know, they, they're glossing over that, or, or they're, they're, um, they're adopting some of the more um, disturbing elements of the story as positive. Um, and that's a particular interpretation, that's a path that they're taking, Does that makes sense.
0: So, and you give a brief history of Merrick saying that as a regional leader of the greater New York Bene Akiva Zionist Youth Movement and a congregational rabbi of a conservative synagogue in Howard Beach, Kahane amassed a following for his charismatic leadership. In 1968, he founded the Jewish Defense League, a vigilante self-defense group that sought to project an image of Jewish strength and virility, polarizing New York City by roaming around with baseball bats and lead pipes. Strongly opposed to the Black Power movement, the JDL, amplified claims of Black anti-Semitism and Black crime against elderly Jews in changing neighborhoods, using this narrative as a pretext to bully Black people, all while appropriating the Black Power fist for their logo. Anne even trained young men in a Shia, a Hebrew word for wild animal, a Shia squad that was encouraged to get in touch with their animal instincts and passion for violence. At its height, the group's membership exceeded 15,000 people after a Jewish secretary in Manhattan died following a JDL bombing in 1972. However, the group lost most of its public presence and organizational strength. I didn't have this question written down, but while reading that, uh, to what degree is baked into this Kahanist view of Zionism, uh, how much is white supremacy baked into that?
2: Yes, good question. Um, so I think it's really important in thinking about uh Kahana's biography and the movement that he spawned uh, to put him in context. Um, in. Brooklyn. Um, where he was born in 1932 uh, and where he founded the JDL in 1968. Um, right. What's significant about 1968 in New York City? How much did New York change between 1932 and 1968? Um, right. The tr- The thing is, is that, you know, you've got this rise of a militant black power movement um, and specifically how that played out in Brooklyn um, was this cataclysmic um, political struggle of the uh, Ocean Hill, Brownsville, uh, teachers strike and the community control movement there, Um, right? Basically the um, unionized uh, teachers, mostly Jewish went on strike, uh, I believe because of, of an attempt to, um, to fire one of them uh, in a um, mostly black school in Brooklyn. Um, and then the, um, the black community sort of lashed out um, against the uh, white, again, mostly Jewish teachers um, and said, we want community control. And it was this whole ugly fight, um, which revealed kind of the contradictions of the, of the mainstream Narrative of New York liberalism and cosmopolitanism, um, and really shook um, white Jewish New Yorkers to their to their core, and you know, um, made them really question kind of their role uh, in uh, the civil rights movement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, meanwhile, of course, for, for decades already, um, Jews with the means to do it had been uh, going out to. Uh, the suburbs and uh, abandoning these neighborhoods in in Brooklyn and the Bronx um, and uh, leaving some poorer Jews behind, which was a big um, opportunity for Kahana and a lot of the jdl rhetoric um, and actions of the time were were um, focused on um, protecting the supposed the, the vulnerable uh, poor and elderly Jews who were left behind now um, <sighs> Um, despite what you might think um with Kahana's rhetoric about Jews versus Goyan, uh in Brooklyn with the JDL, um, they were mostly uh concerned with the anti-Semitism of black people, um, not elite white anti-Semitism, not kind of ethnic uh feuds between Jews and the Italians and the Irish. Um, he actually had some close alliances with Italian mobsters um so it's a there's a disjunction there a contradiction right um he has no problem apparently that i can find with the the white gentiles of brooklyn uh it's all about attacking um at the increasingly um militant and uh class conscious um black power movement um so yeah i i would say white supremacy is underlying that uh, and then he's kind of importing brooklyn white supremacy um, to the Israeli milieu later in his career.
0: So without Kahana, do you think that there would be this extremist far right violence that we're seeing by some in Israel today?
2: Well, <laughs> you know, it, it's sort of a, a foolish, uh, proposal to say everything comes down to one guy. Right. Right. And you, you know, I, I think, um, when you know as a writer when i'm when i'm putting forward this this kind of thesis that uses a figure like a charismatic figure like kahana uh as the um kind of case study like yeah i'm always trying to to draw stuff back to him um you know look at uh baruch goldstein um who your listeners may know of uh he um massacred dozens of uh worshippers at a mosque, and it's in 1994. Um, so to to this day, um, I think the deadliest uh, act of vigilante uh, terrorist violence uh, um, by a by a, a, a far right um, extremist in Israel. Um, he, you know, he was one of the founding members of the JDL, um, which, by the way, um, means that he joined it as a 12 year old, um, since he was born in 1956. Um, so you can trace a lot of, um, the, the major, um, the kind of foundational events, um, of, uh, extremist far-right Zionism to Kahana. Um, but you know, um, he's, he's part of the world that he lives in. Um, and, um, he's not the only, He's not the only guy to show up, um, making Aliyah from Brooklyn, um, having seen what he saw, um, he's just, you know, he's kind of a charismatic, uh, uh,
0: figure that rallies these ideas around him. And you write that Kahana had already been convicted in federal court for conspiracy to manufacture explosives and move to Israel while out on probation. There, he began laying the groundwork for Koch, a uh, political party that would excoriate mainstream parties for tolerating Arab presence in Israel and predict that Arab demographic strength. Would destroy the Jewish state Why is there so much violent fear Around being demographically outnumbered By those who are not Jewish in Israel Do Jewish people in Israel fear That if the Palestinians outnumber them There will be a holocaust And should they? Uh,
2: good, yeah, good question That's 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 exactly what, what they're thinking um, Now, Kahana is always Pushing this idea that there's going to be another Holocaust, uh, he did it in the United States, even though that makes no sense. Um, <laughs> and you know, and obviously Jews are a demographic minority in the United States, um, and uh, as a whole have done pretty well for themselves. Um, but yeah, he he is um, obsessed with this idea that the um, only way to protect Jews. From another Holocaust, this time at the hands of Arabs, is to maintain uh, a demographic majority in a um, in an ethno state. This is not unique to him. I mean, the, um, there's a lot a lot of um, Zionists throughout history who who thought this was the um, only way to maintain safety. Um, I think I mean you know go back to the Dreyfus affair um, and and the Herzl. Um, he he was sitting around in, in you know um in the assimilated um jewish context and and saw uh Dreyfus defamed um as a jew by the french um and, and thought the only way forward um here is a uh, a jewish state um of our own um now i want to say um about this line of thinking um which kahana promoted um that he kind of how do i say this he he projects um his own style of uh, ethnic supremacy onto the world uh, and sees it as only natural um, that any people that that maintains a demographic majority within a country will oppress minorities and treat them as aliens. Um, I want to quote uh, Jackie Mason, um, the uh, Jewish kind of Borscht Belt comedian who died this week. Um, he was a supporter of Mayor Kahana, um, and he told the um, reporter uh, and author Robert Friedman um, when asked about his support for Kahana, um, he said um, democratic principles shouldn't apply to israel like they do in america if arabs multiply to such an extent where they become as numerous as israeli jews they can vote out the jews and end the jewish state jews would become aliens in their own country and that's the problem and that's why america is right you are stupid and so are people like yourself who say how terrible we are to the arabs um okay so he, he was a bad guy just since he died recently i wanted to denigrate his name um uh, he's also making this um, leap in characterizing how democracy works and saying that as as soon as the Jews become a minority demographically, they would become aliens in their own country, um, as though you know any naturalized people in in a demo- democratically run country uh, become aliens. We know that's not how it works, and it's you know it's just. Self-evidently outmoded As a way to think about uh, Democratically run countries, you know
0: When you're talking about the story of Samson You mentioned that Kahane Was something of an ideological seducer Adept at revealing flashes of his ideology To people who may never have been attracted To the whole thing This ability is why he continues to pose a threat Precisely because he continuously exerted himself As a public propagandist presenting toxic and catastrophic violence as a matter of simple self-defense. Are those who are his followers or share his beliefs, uh, Then, are they not necessarily the most religious or have the most religious training or knowledge? Who are the people who may never have been attracted to the whole thing, but were were once they heard Kahanez speak or read his writings?
2: Yeah. Um, so I mentioned Jackie Mason. Uh, I mean, he, he's... Um, think of him as being an ultra-Orthodox guy. Um, I also in the piece um, mentioned Bob Dylan, who inexplicably told Time Magazine, uh, Kahana's a really sincere guy. He's really put it all together. Um, these are sort of American Jews um, who are not, in, who have not embraced uh, you know a Torah lifestyle at all, right? Um, and Mason more than Dylan perhaps, um, but they, um, they see some appeal uh, in this sort of Jewish supremacist ideology, as long as, you know, it's presented in a piecemeal fashion. I think Kahana, fundamentally, as a writer and as a propagandist, was, was a master of uh, esoteric presentation. Um, he, he would say as much as was needed while uh, leaving the more extreme elements uh, as subtext. Um, you know, I think if he had gone uh, out to um, synagogues or to, you know, uh, Hadassah meetings or to college campuses in the U.S. and said, um, you know, the whole point of the Zionist enterprise, as he believed, uh, was is to, um, to take eternal revenge over the Goyim, you know, people would have been uh, terrified and alienated by his ideas. Um, so uh, I wanted to describe to you this... Um, full page advertisement in the New York times, uh, which the JDL took out in summer of 1969. Go ahead. Um, So, um, it says question, is this any way for nice Jewish boys to behave? Then it's got a picture. Okay. The picture is like, there's these six Jewish guys and they're holding, like, you know, baseball bats and, and pipes. Um, and, uh, it says answer, maybe, Maybe there are times when there is no other way to get across to the extremist, that the Jew is not quite the patsy some think he is. Maybe some people and organizations are too nice, et cetera. Um, and the, the, um, the ad ends, well, the ad ends with a fundraising appeal. Um, and, and before that, it says uh, nice Jewish, Christian, white and black boys should create a society of justice and equality in which people can get back to being nice. So the message of the ad is we have to be tough guys um, in order to assert our rights um, and we should work towards justice and equality to get back to being nice. Now, he, he was not, the JDL was not creating an interfaith, multiracial, uh, you know, uh, effort to, you know, towards justice and equality. They just said that at the end so that people would feel good about it and donate to them. Uh, and that worked. Um, the journalist I mentioned before, Robert Friedman, did a great job tracing how um, substantial donations from affluent American Jews provided the basis for kahana 's activities um, so you know they I would say on one hand i'd say they 're duped, but on the other hand i'd say Kahana is really playing on uh contradictions within the liberal um, jewish american psyche and and kind of you know kind of getting getting people to put some money towards um this vision of the uh, the tough masculine Jew who's going to defend the
0: weak. And you were mentioning earlier about this Kahana's view of democracy, about how the, all it is is when the winners take office, they repress the losers. You write that Kahana was an expert at pulling at the dark edges of the American Jewish psyche, which in those days was still overwhelmingly liberal and democratic. Uncomfortable Truths for Comfortable Jews, he sneered in one of his book titles, boldly suggesting that if his audience were not so confused by affluence, they would already know what he had come to teach. Genocidal violence is plain spoken common sense. fear while claiming to, and many believing, you are standing up for the little guy, as Kahana said, while wrapping yourself in the Torah, which d- attracts those who usually are not religious, and know as little about the religion as you do. I hate to say this, but this sounds very very Trumpian and very Fox News, where the Republican Party is today. Is Mayor Kahana the blueprint for someone uh, like another New Yorker, former President Donald Trump, or is Kahana not as much a pioneer as he is one in a long line of using religion to dehumanize others while claiming to be doing it for the little guy?
2: Yeah, um, I think that's it. That would be an interesting uh, line of research um, to um, to trace uh, kind of tropes that Kahana's is using that that are that have something in common with, I guess, like evangelical fundamentalism of you know the Christian stripe in the U.S. Um, haven't done that, um, and you know Trump obviously doesn't have a, a direct line. Um, of it, there's no direct lineage right between the, the fundamentalists and Trump um but right, Trump is a is a gaudy capitalist he he doesn't he, he doesn't know the first thing about religion and does not talk about it that much um so um you know i i, I don't know uh, i don't know about that and i think the, you know the, the thing that's appealing um th- where kahana gets his power is from the um specific status of jews you know, who are a minority in the world um, and who did suffer catastrophic loss in the middle of the century. Um, That's sort of, it's hard to generalize. From that, um, Kahana uses the specter of the Holocaust really adeptly, uh, as uh, we've mentioned, I think. And um, he also um, had this whole kind of bit of like righteous castigation of the liberal Jewish establishment in so far as they kind of sat on their hands, praising FDR while FDR did nothing to stop the Holocaust. Um, you know, uh, Which is, I think, a really attractive, like compelling point um, about the liberal Jewish establishment and about, you know, he, he kind of then leveraged that t- to this uh, vision of a, a um, pugilistic um, uh, Jewish type. Um, now, so I, I think that, that sort of thing is, is particular to, uh, to him. Um, but there, is definitely, there are common themes uh, between his movement and Trumpism uh, insofar as it's kind of um, uh, a project of revenge against the uh,
0: contradictions and excesses of liberalism. And you point out that such credulous figures as Reuben Mattis, the founder of Hagendaz, forked over big bucks while Bob Dylan mused to Time magazine that Kahana is a really sincere guy. He's really put it all together. And you write that Kahana raised money in the U.S. for educational purposes while funneling donations into building the infrastructure for a terrorist political party in Israel. While the Hagendaz guy might have loved the pleasantly chauvinistic pride in Jewishness Kahana peddled in Connecticut. Kahana's core followers were buying into a catastrophic worldview of eternal strife and violence between Jew and Arab. Kahana's core followers were buying into a catastrophic worldview of eternal strife and violence between Jew and Arab. How self-perpetuating is that belief? Is a cause of strife between Arab and Jew Kahana's legacy of teaching that Arabs and Jews were engaged in eternal strife and violence
2: um yeah first of all I want to say I I, I find it um I'm tickled by the fact that in the week after um I published this piece um there was an explosion of um discourse around ice cream companies and Israel um you know (laughs) Ben and Jerry's made waves by uh, attempting to pull out of um, selling in the occupied territories. Um, Hagen dazs became the kind of um, uh, the, the alternative for um, right-wing Jews in the US who want to um, uh, withdraw their support for Ben and Jerry's. Um, many of them don't know that the Hagen dazs founder um, was actually really right-wing. Um, so it's kind of fitting. Uh anyway, <laughs> the um the I described kind of later in the piece. I mean, you know, somebody might might be reading or listening along to this and, and thinking kind of skeptically like what's so special about Kahana? Um you know, there's obviously a lot of conflict <laughs> um between Jews, Jews and Arabs. um and uh, there are a lot of Zionists who um don't see Arabs as being uh, a legitimate part of um, the uh, state of Israel. Um, so I, I just want to put a fine point on this, and uh, sorry if we're going to get to this later. But um, K- Kahana's whole thing is that the very per- the very founding purpose of um, the state of Israel is to enact vengeance um, against. the the Arabs, the Palestinians in particular, though he, you know, he thinks that's fake, a fake identity, um, uh, for the humiliation, um, that the Jewish people have suffered for, for generations. Um, so for him, it is, it's eternal because, um, if the, um, you know, if the Arabs ever actually, um, did, you know, uh, emigrate en masse from, Uh, the area and leave the Jews, their Jewish state, um, you know, his ideology would be kind of um, empty at that point.
0: And you uh, write how uh, Kana, uh, delighted in pointing out the contradictions and delusions of liberal Zionism, when it came to the Arab problem, that is that liberal Zionists can't stomach admitting to themselves that they simply wish the Arabs would go away on their own. And you then quote Kana, writing, The soothing legend of our good Arabs who are equal and free and who appreciate and love Israel is fed, along with liver, chicken, and stuffed derma, to the Hadassah's portly and younger suburban matrons. How important is that sexist machismo to Kahana's violent views, popularity? Is it it an excuse for the excitement of hooliganism uh, that morphs into street violence and even terrorism? How how important is that sexist machismo to Kahana's thinking?
2: Um, Really important, man. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, And, um, you know... Uh, reading that kind of thing, my, my eyebrows sh- shoot up to see um, his kind of sneering description of the the matrons of Hadassah. Um, uh, he, the misogyny extends of course to um, to the men of uh, Jewish liberalism who he sees as weak and effeminate, um, which is of course you know an anti-Semitic stereotype about Jews. Um, so there's this kind of contradiction um, in his ideas, which uh, he fights anti-Semitism, but adopts anti-Semitic ideas. Um, and, um, you know, the machismo, it comes, it comes back to, um, again, the boys who are, uh, who are dancing to the Dov Shuren song uh, at the Western Wall. Um, there's this, you know, really intense kind of, uh, I guess, like bro culture going on here. Um, and, um, they have this whole ideology of, uh, protecting Jewish women from the predations of Arab men. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the violent violence towards the other, um, in this kind of, I'd say fascist framework, um, is coupled with control, um, domination of, uh, of women and a kind of, um, You know sneering misogyny
0: And you point out that eliminationist Racism against Arabs is prevalent In Israel from its beginning Zionism Has been marred by Jewish supremacy And virulent hatred for Arab peoples Who got in the way of the vision Of a Jewish society Can there be Zionism The project to build a Jewish nation That is not marred by Jewish supremacy and virulent Hatred for Arab peoples because The impression that we have now In the 2020s is that has always existed,
2: yeah, I don't know um I say guess I'll say I'm kind of um, you, you know agnostic on on the it's sort of like a it's sort of a question of definitions um you know um do you think of um uh, of Zionism as being um uh, marred essentially by um by this uh racism against arabs or not um uh, I, don't, say I don't i don't really know enough to say i mean i think that there are a lot of um there are a lot of sort of liberal um let's say this there are a lot of liberal zionists who are um who are struggling with this um with these contradictions um and i i guess i hope they work it out um uh the you know one of the things which is sort of a time capsule in reading Kahana's stuff is um is how he describes um the efforts of you know the liberal Zionist leadership to um kind of integrate Arabs, albeit as sort of second-class citizens, into Zionist society. Um, you know, and th- at the time of his writing, the labor party was still pretty pretty much dominant um in Israel. Um now they've basically been decimated um, and um, far right projects um, of Zionism are much more ascendant. So I think, um, you know, the the, the project of, of liberal Zionism is, is kind of on the retreat. Um, but, you know, I, I, don't, I can't speak to its essence or anything like that.
0: So how many of uh, Israel's problems—you you point this out in your writing as well—but how many of Israel's problems and challenges, both internally and externally, are the result of its claim to be a secular state while having a—being uh, you know being a democratic secular state, while having a kind of theocratic identity, if you will? Are these two forces always at odds within Israel? Um, I think it's a real— uh, struggle.
2: And, um, I think Israel has made some, um, really difficult wrong turns when it comes to, um, the definition of the state as such and its relationship to Jewish identity. Um, you know, um, to, to, to the point where, yeah, I mean, K- Kahana, it was, very, it, it was one, of, one of Kahana's big things was to say um, this is, a, you know, the idea of a Jewish democracy is a contradiction in terms. Um, and he was um, extreme for saying that at the time. I think it's become a um, much more popular view uh, in the 21st century.
0: And one thing you pointed out, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to make sure that people understood this point, is, uh, you know, it would seem like Kahana what he, what he was pointing toward is that he wanted to see a genocide, that he wanted to see the end of the Palestinian people and what he believed was historic Israel. But you also point out that it's important to have the Palestinians still be around in Kahana's thinking. Why is it important for Palestinians to still exist despite Broadcasting this view of genocide.
2: Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of a contradiction for him. And, you know, because um, you can't really have an eternal, I don't know, maybe you can, but it, it, he's got this kind of eternal genocide. He wants to drive out the Palestinians, but he wants to always be doing it. And um, this is because, now, there's this great uh, article um, published in the year after his death, 1991, by Ehud Skrinsack, um, which uh, analyzes some. Um, writings which were just, originally just circulated amongst Kahana's followers. Um, and in, in those writings, he talks about um, this fundamental um, question of religious Zionism, right? Religious Zionism was not a popular ideology, um, really, before 1967, Zionism was predominantly secular, and, and um, you know, Haredim and other ultra-Orthodox Jews rejected Zionism. Um, as a usurpation of Jewish identity, as a taint of the holy Land, right? Um, because they hated secularism okay so they thought secular nationalism was bad. Um, so religious scientists are are faced with this fundamental problem of how does a predominantly secular movement have theological positive significance um, so the the main way to think about this, pioneered by uh, uh, Rav. Uh, Abraham Cook and, and his uh, grandson grandson Yehuda Cook um, is like basically that um, there's this kind of historical process of redemption of the Jewish people. Um, and yeah, like secular Jews are a part of it, um, but it's also the telos of it is sort of this um, messianic like conversion of all Jews to um, the Torah um, over time. Now, uh, Kahana sees things differently. Um, He sees the whole thing as basically the the state of Israel, like Samson in the book of Judges, is kind of an unwitting pawn of God's uh, plan. And God, like the Jewish people, uh, has been humiliated by Gentile dominance for centuries um, and wants to use um, the Zionist project, uh, no matter how secular, to use it as a uh, tool to enact vengeance on the gentiles so um for kahana the state of israel he says this himself the state of israel is not really for the jews it's for the gentiles and by that he means it's for vengeance against the gentiles um so um like i said before it would be without the gentile it would be kind of an empty project
0: So that leads me to one last question for you, Avi. We've been speaking with Avi Gerlich, who wrote the hypocrite reader article, The Violence is the Point, which you can find at hypocritereader.com. So our final question, as we do with all of our guests, I promise it is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. What you were just saying about Kahana and having the vengeance being in the centermost core aspect of what it is to be Israel and being Israeli. And as you point out in your writing, you write how followers of Kahana, like Bentzion Gopstein, uh, head of Lahava, an organization opposed to miscegenation between. Jews and Arabs, not to be able to uh, marry, have expounded the tale as a uh, model for their, their students celebrating vengeance as the highest form of Jewish authenticity. What happens when your identity is guided by revenge? How does life change when you're always in a state of seeking vengeance? And can revenge ever be satisfied?
2: Yeah. Good question. So, um, I guess I guess I want to use this question as an opportunity to say, um, zoom out and say, you, you know, um, a lot of the um, right wing resurgence of the last um, fifty years. Uh, not just in Israel, but also again back in um, the outer boroughs in New York, um, are founded on um, what we call a, a revanchist ideology. Right? That's also revanchist. Basically, means revenge, revenge-oriented um, revanchist ideology towards the um, the idea that um, you know the government is giving all of the support to poor people, to black people, um and um you know we need a kind of um resurgence of police uh, repressive violence, um etc in order to kind of take back the city. Um you know that's some stuff that I study I've studied in different contexts and I think that has um in common with Kahanas ideology, it has this uh, push for vengeance, uh, and I think the push for vengeance in that context is um, is hiding uh, a kind of um, conflict between the middle class and the poorer classes that's engineered uh, by capital um, so I, I think you know we unfortunately haven't uh, talking t- spoken that much about um, uh, the role of capitalism in stoking vengeance um you know since the essay is focused on this kind of religious fundamentalism um but i think what happens when you when you tear back the veil of the vengeance and and uh look for some uh for some core um i think you know you can you can find um that there is kind of a goading of vengeful ideologies um that is kept in place um by the um by kind of forces of uh capital that want to sow um dissension uh between races ethnicities religions and classes um so that's what really we should always look for behind um ideologies of vengeance
0: so often avi the answer to the question from hell is because capitalism so, I think you've hit it right on, hit the nail on the head. Avi Gerlich wrote the Hypocrite Reader article, The Violence is the Point, which you can find at com. Thank you so much, not only for your writing at Reader, for but for you being the editor in chief of Hypocrite uh, Reader and all of the great work that everybody is doing over well, I,
2: there. I got, I got to say, while you mentioned that, that I'm an editor emeritus. I haven't actually been editing a Hypocrite Reader for a
0: while. All right. Well, let's just keep that between you and I. All right. All right, Avi. Take care. Sure. Thank you. If you like what you just heard from Avi about Israel's violent, extreme far right and what guides them, please show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can contribute to This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise and a direct link to our weekly Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to now at... Patreon.com slash hell. Thanks to Magnificent Me and Brett B for continuing to show your tithing-like commitment to this is hell. Thanks, Magnificent and Brett. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since nineteen ninety six, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, please subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at Patreon.com slash this hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at Patreon.com slash this hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at ten AM Chicago time and is podcast at the same place shortly after tomorrow on Patreon. We will be continuing our brief history of This Is Hell with what I said earlier this week would be a part two. But in reality, I guess it's part three, as back on July 20th, Tuesday of last week, I recounted a tiny bit of This Is Hell history. So really, tomorrow, it will be part three of a brief history of This Is Hell. In tomorrow's concluding chapter, I will do my best to remember why and how we were threatened by a Chicago alderman for having one of his critics on our show, how an activist group uh, insisted that the only way they would appear on the show is if I gave up an hour of the show to them. Permanently, There was also the activist who warned us to never discuss a very touchy subject or we would be cancelled before cancelling was a thing. Here's a hint. We discussed the topic on today's show. I'll also recount the times when we gave station access to someone who was actually a computer thief and someone else who was so upset that they came in and cut all the power to the entire building. And I will also do my best at remembering... How it was a finalist in an NPR talent contest That seemed really, really rigged We'll also be sharing our April 18, 2009 interview With international relations scholar Peter Gowan Who was on at the time to talk about his article Crisis in the Heartland Which appeared in the new Left Review Peter's writing was incredibly prescient Written only a few months after the Great Recession of 2008 He accurately predicts how Wall Street will react to the financial disaster of 2008 and how they're not going to do a very good job at reacting. Sadly, Peter would pass away later that year so he was never able to see that his analysis Would come true Which means tomorrow on Patreon It's the final chapter for now Of a brief history of This Is Hell And an interview from shortly after the financial collapse of 2008 Which accurately predicts exactly how Wall Street would respond But you can only hear all of that by subscribing To our Patreon podcast Patreon.com slash This Is Hell Live from land stolen from the Pottawatomie people This Is Hell Alex, please remind listeners What is this week's question from Hell And tell them how they are responding What are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in the year 2046?
1: Old pals, are we getting too cozy with Hypocrite Reader? I don't know. Okay, because now it's a question from Hell Response. They said, The demon on my butt has has metastasized. (laughs) Okay. The demon on my butt has metastasized. What are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in the year 2046? Eatfart69 says how money from the Bayer Monsanto Pharmaceutical and Robotics Corporation financed Luke Bryant bought 3000's Tata Topsoil Tour. I have absolutely no idea what half of those things mean uh, Joel, Joel G says The end of predatory capitalism and how we ended the climate crisis yes, really I don't know how that one I, I understand that one even less A.T. Uh, Moore says The humanitarian fallout caused by foreign policy advisor Henry Kissinger's recommendations to Emperor Aidan Clinton Mezvinsky.
0: Wow Yikes the fact that you know Chelsea Clinton's kid's name is creepy.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, Wage labor
1: says they look back at the second reign of terror. <laughs> Pofer says Lake Michigan Asian carp populations finally coming under control due to the newer invasive species, Komodo dragons. Miss <laughs> KB says it'll only be a matter. It'll only be about the fourth or fifth anniversary show after the year zero reset, and we do not talk about the event. Michael D says, knees and back pain. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to talk about this show in the year 2046? St. Ham Yolo says, the Russians. Two Throne says, the reanimated corpse of Karl Marx. Oh, Kevin O says, how in the world has Chuck's cryogenically frozen head been misplaced again? A couple more. What are we going to talk about on this show in the year 2046? Austin RM says, the digital obsolescence of This Is Hell's all too recently completed archive project and the moral and ethical implications of training an AI on five decades of This Is Hell to create a cyber chuck so that this may be hell in perpetuity. Martin F. says, whether or not This Is Hell is actually God's favorite radio show, also a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin's formaldehyde Preserved Head (laughs) about the past hundred years of America's global supremacy post-WW2. Mike C. says, post-ocean rise, all aboard. VSS moment of truth (laughs) canoe is leaving for Canada. Last call. Sebastian W. says... The nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, gory, this week in Rotten History 26 years ago. <laughs> Neil C. says, in 2046, Coke Industries will own the airwaves. The show will be called This is Heaven, and the only thing on will be an infinite loop of Benjamin Braddock hearing that one word, plastics.
0: <laughs> I had to look up Benjamin Braddock. Did you know who that was?
1: This is that guy who talks about complains about plastics in that movie from a long time ago? Yes,
0: exactly, from uh, The Graduate. Yeah, that's the Wham, my dad character. got me
1: a job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what I thought Plastics. when I watched that movie. Yeah. Uh, maybe you had to be there back in the 60s. And finally, Tynan S. says, maybe Henry Kissinger will finally die this year. Damn, Henry Kissinger's living rent-free <laughs> in the heads of leftists.
0: <laughs> and the answers I liked the most were, I'm not too sure about you, Alex, but I did like Tynan saying, maybe Henry Kissinger will finally die this year. Good Lord, that guy has got to go. And then everybody who he has had any influence on, then they need to go too. And then... Whoever they influenced you too. Uh Martin saying whether or not This Is Hell Is actually God's favorite radio show Also a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchan's High Preserved Head About the uh, past 100 years of America's Global supremacy post-World War II I did like Justin saying, today in hell, ocean fires on the eastern seaboard continue to rise. As President Grimes and First Gentleman Elon Musk address the nation from the moon bunker, scientists are still baffled by the kamikaze bird phenomenon plaguing the nation's personal jet commuters. Amazon guillotine sales reach a new record high, and we talk to podcaster-influencer Henry Kissinger about living, laughing, and loving at 123. This is producer... Alex in for Chuck, who is out today with the eponymous Mertz disease, characterized by confusion, vulgarity, and crippling cynicism. Also, Jeff Dorchin By the way, that disease has now moved from my lungs to my... I don't know where my disease is now. Fabio saying mining the still-sentient, uploaded consciousness of billions of poor people who sold their synaptic activity to get out of social birth debt is threatening a credit bubble. Interview with... Barron Trump and Dan saying how to Get coffee stains Out of your gills Alex Any of those that really sticks out to you Uh, Let me
1: control off to see if anyone wrote my mom Uh, (laughs) No I like the one about Getting coffee stains out of your gills is Dan K
0: Yeah we're going to go with that Uh, Dan you have Won yet again you won about six or Eight weeks ago and you got to quit winning, but that's just definitely the best answer to this week's question from hell. Again, the question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on the show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? Dan K. said, how to get coffee stains out of your gills. That is a really spectacular answer. My answer to this week's question from that's easy. We'll be talking about how capital and the wealthy somehow co-opted the alien invasion to their advantage, using their new technology to have even more control over us than they already had, and how we will willfully accept this new greater control over us because that alien technology is really cool and makes life so convenient. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from Hal. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled to be on next week's set of shows?
1: Yeah, I got two people. So on Monday, Sebijan Fejula will be on to talk about her Roar magazine piece, The Roma Struggle from Protests to Political Liberation. Hot damn. And then on Wednesday, uh, A.S. Dillingham will be on to talk about his book, Oaxaca Resurgent, Indigeneity, Development, and Inequality in 20th Century Mexico.
0: And Jeffy will be back for a moment of truth Next Thursday Did you hear that they're no longer calling the Gypsy Moth The Gypsy Moth Because the Roma people have stood up and said That is an offensive name for a moth Because they referred to it as a Gypsy Moth Because it came in Destroys everything And leaves absolutely nothing Of value behind So screw that Gypsy Moth What are they calling it now? Oh, no, it's named after a Roma scientist who I now forgot. We start every week's live streaming shows here at ThisIsHell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is instead of buying some brand name isotonic carbohydrate electrolyte sports drink, just make your own. Thanks to this week's guests, including... Christina Conklin, co-author of The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis, which she wrote with sustainability expert Marina Saros. You can follow Christina on Twitter at Christy Conklin. Also thanks to Jocelyn C. Zuckerman, author of Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. Find out more about Jocelyn by going to jocelynczuckerman.com. Uh, Jocelyn follow Jocelyn on Twitter at jocelynzuck. Thanks to yesterday's guest, Uruguayan-American writer, Jorge, my food, who wrote the Common Dreams articles, Cuba and the U.S., the difference between dictatorship and tyranny and consumerism, another inheritance from the slavery system. You can find out more about Jorge at his website, myfood.org. And thanks to our guest today, Avi Gerlich, who wrote the Hypocrite Reader article, The Violence is the Point, which you can find at Hypocritereader.com. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Egon Sheely and Jess Lipka for running the board this week. Also, thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin just for everything he does. Special thanks to Theron Humiston because, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash hell, when I'll be sharing what turns out to be the third part of a brief history of the 25 years of This Is Hell and we'll have recording from back in 2009 when Peter Gowan accurately predicted what would happen Following the financial collapse of 2008, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid.
1: I read Black Agenda Report, everybody.